a white van approaches. There's a sketchy dude behind the wheel. He pulls up, rolls down the window, starts asking weird questions. Do you make polite conversation? Do you avert your eyes? Or do you run like hell from the serial killer in your midst? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. This is part two of a special Crossing the Line. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from Larry Hall. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded. Over 10 years ago, I was involved with investigating several unsolved murder cases for an investigation discovery series I had on air called Dark Minds. I had developed information that Larry Dwayne Hall, a notorious serial stalker and admitted murderer, was possibly the perpetrator in several of those cases. I reached out to Larry. He was definitely interested. I went through the process of setting up a call with him, and I nearly got him on the phone. But in the end, Larry decided not to talk to me. Then I got in touch with my source, a kind-hearted woman who had been communicating with several noted serial killers, Larry Hall among them. And I should mention, you're going to hear a lot more of those conversations that I have, or lost tapes, if you will in the next several months on Crossing the Line. And I'm talking about several noted household-named serial killers. So subscribe to the show and don't miss out. Well, Larry Hall trusted her. He liked her too, I believe, in a sort of motherly way. Larry is simple like that. He needs someone to tell him he's a good boy, not a bad boy. He was getting something out of talking to her. So I asked my new source if I could feed her some questions I had for Larry and she could casually work them into her conversations with him. She agreed. Some time later, she sent me several recordings. That is how I acquired the quotes you heard in part one last week and this week in this special two-part Crossing the Line episode. And I want to just say here, if you haven't heard that episode, please go back and take a listen before continuing with this episode, since we're going to conclude the story today. You see, the thing about Larry Hall is this. After he was arrested and charged with federal kidnapping, had several years of legal battles, appeals, and a second trial, he was sentenced to life behind bars in federal prison. Larry has never been convicted of murder. That kidnapping charge Larry is doing his time for stems from the Jessica Roach abduction. The young girl on her bike later found decomposed and mutilated in a cornfield farming combine, who you heard about last week in part one. They could not prove he killed her, but had enough proof to gain a conviction for kidnapping, a lower bar to prove. Larry Hall has been connected to so many stalking incidents, kidnappings, and murders. It's truly too much to cover in even two episodes. So I am focusing only on a few of his cases here with the emphasis on those that got him caught, one of which he talks about on the tapes. 
It was November 11, 1994, when a detective working the Jessica Roach case and a special agent from the FBI tracked Larry Hall down and interviewed him at length. Larry had been ID'd in several abduction cases by this time, his vehicle described by several young girls. His license plate number had been taken down by a bunch of different people. During this interview, he was read as Miranda writes. As they spoke, the investigators showed him a photo of Jessica Roach while discussing her case. Larry Hall drops his head, droops his shoulders, and begins sobbing. It was then that he signed a confession for Jessica's murder. While in prison, Larry Hall then admits to a fellow inmate who befriended him, James Keene, that he murdered Trisha Reitler, the Wesleyan University freshman psychology student who never made it back from the store, Keene was actually a plant by law enforcement sent in to become Hall's friend and gain a confession from him. Lunatic Larry ultimately tells Keene that he grabbed Reitler, bound her in his van, took her home, kept her restrained in his van until he decided to kill her and bury her in a field somewhere. Yeah, so James Keene is the guy that they're talking about in Blackbird, and it's really well done and all about how Keene built this relationship with Larry Hall specifically to get a confession from him. Right. And I'll say this, I applaud Apple TV Plus and the production value of that series. It's very well done. And by the way, that's Catherine Law, my producer. Hi. And yes, Captain Law is her real name, <laughs> Trollsters. Hi, Catherine. And everyone else in my family is a lawyer, so I escaped. I got out. Ha, ha. It's true. It's true. My aunties, my sister, my dad, they're all lawyers. <laughs> Attorney law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Have you fallen at work? Have you slipped on the ice outside the local <laughs> diner? Call Attorney law. She's got your back. Literally. <laughs> Years go by after that confession, and Larry Hall then steps forward and decides, you know what? I'd like to recant. <laughs> All of my murder admissions now. Of course, of course. Essentially saying he made it all up. This was just going to be too easy, wasn't it, Phelps? This is, you know, this is a serial killer doing what serial killers do best. Looking out for number one. There was also an issue on appeal pertaining to how the confessions were acquired by law enforcement. Coercion became a player in this, and Hall's lawyers argued that he had confessed to crimes he didn't commit because he wanted to appease law enforcement. Because of that, his guilty verdict was vacated in 1996. As I said up top, during a second trial, Larry was convicted for kidnapping once again and sentenced to life. Thank goodness. Here's what I'm interested in. After his confessions, investigators began to map out his Civil War reenactment travels and place him at many of the locations around the same times, days, many of the girls went missing. And Larry Hall, if he was good at one thing, it was getting rid of bodies. So a lot of his alleged victims have never been found. Many of the victims' circumstances bear very similar characteristics, which I went over in part one last week. Dishwater blonde or brunette girls walking to a friend's and vanishing. College girls out for a walk and just gone. Girls playing in a yard. A dirty white van parked across the street stalking them. The driver with huge sideburns. That's what we're talking about here. 
Some of the girls they did find were sexually mutilated, beaten, tortured, and strangled. Those are all horrifying hallmarks of Mr. Muttonchop. Years after he recants, Larry Hall gives an interview to the Associated Press in which he admits to abducting 39 women dating from 1980 up until 1994. Among those is a young woman named Lori Deppis, whose case I profiled last week in part one, the victim driving the Volkswagen with the loud muffler who disappeared after parking at her boyfriend's apartment complex. Right, before she could even reach the doorway. Right. She was swiped right out of the parking lot. I would guess. Insane. The van door slid open. Larry and somebody else with him, I'm going to reckon. Could be. Mm -hmm. Grabbed her and threw her into the van and took off within seconds. Because they were stalking her. I could go through all the details of several cases where Larry Hall is, without a doubt in my mind, the perp. It would take two more episodes. So for time purposes, let's agree that Larry Hall is a very bad, very disgusting, very aggressive, and very violent scumbag who abducted and raped and murdered women all over the Midwest, parts of the South, and even into Pennsylvania. I mean, that was so many things it was hard for you to even say with one breath. That's too many things. Did he kill 39 women? 49? 60? Who knows? 39. The number he gave to the Associated Press, that's a fairly exact number. So it scares me that he would toss it out there. Did he murder a lot of women? Yes. I think it's safe to say a dozen or more. The number of victims I found in a university study of Larry Hall is 54 total, four admitted by him, 40 alleged victims with 14 bodies recovered. Holy shit. This guy was active. That's crazy. And that's such a long time to be active too. 80 to 94. That is an insanely long time. But almost the perfect time if you're a serial killer as stupid as Larry (laughs) Hall is because- No cell phones. Well, no cell phones, but also no coordinated task force type of investigative efforts going on, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're not really in the serial killer frenzy of Ted Bundy yet. We're just getting there. Right. And jurisdictions still aren't talking to each other, et cetera. Right. One other fact about Larry Hall I'll toss out there, one of which you will agree with as I play more of those recordings, is that- He might have a tendency to play stupid, but after being tested in prison, he scored 80 on the standard IQ test. A child who scores an 80 would be qualified for special needs services, just for comparison. Right. I want to now take a short break before we go back and focus on one of those potential Larry Hall victims, a very young girl you will hear him talk about in those lost Larry Hall tapes. I don't remember the exact, it's somewhere around 8, 13, 8, 12, something like that. No, I don't remember the names. But something like 8, 13, 8, and 12, something like that. I don't remember their names. You fucking liar. Welcome back to the show. (laughs) This crime stuff, we talk about it and well, I just want to say... Look, this is heavy. It sinks into you, gets inside your head without you realizing. And we sometimes become desensitized to how heavy it is and how deep set it can get in there. 
And so I want to be mindful of that, make you aware, and always stress that you must be careful with it, please. At one time after interviewing a serial killer for many, many years, it kind of broke me. So I speak from experience when I say this, and I can tell that story in the future if you want to hear it, but. Yeah. I mean, they say whoever fights monsters should see to it that he doesn't become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. I always thought that was Robert Ressler who wrote the book, Whoever Fights Monsters, but apparently it's Nietzsche. So, you know, go figure. I had a forensic psychologist friend tell me, he said, Matt, you invite a serial killer into your house, you better be ready to dine and dance with him. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not, he's going to get into your head. Yep. So I can attest to that. I mean, the time I gave to that killer, all those years... It was a horrible time in my life, but I think revisiting it and talking it through while detailing the case I was focused on would be good for listeners to understand how this stuff can really, really affect you. Yeah. But that's a story for another time. Now, back to Mr. Civil War buff, Larry Hall. Take a listen to Larry right here. Would it be possible to find a, a girl's name from a, missing from a certain town in Indiana? I know she was, I believe, eight years old. That'd been in the probably the late '80s, like '88 or something like that. Yeah. He's asking my source to look up missing girls on the internet for him because he cannot recall the names, or I should say, he claims he cannot recall. And now we arrive at this one particular victim. You just heard him in that clip talk about young, young girls. And if I am certain about one thing where it pertains to Mr. Serial Killer van driving, living with his parents, bedwetting, fire starting, cliched serial killer Larry Hall, it is this. He was obsessed with girls in the 10 to 13-year-old age range. Absolutely fixated on that age and a certain look. Here he is again, and suddenly he now recalls a name. Yeah, I don't remember. I I didn't know the last name, but Debbie, I believe, but I'm not positive. I can't can't hardly remember. He's talking about Debbie, as he says. Deborah Cole, that's who he's talking about. She had long, feathery, dark brown hair, five feet, three inches tall, about 110 pounds. She had these magnetic, dark blue eyes. Deborah looked very similar to the girls Larry Hall favored, stalked, abducted, and surely murdered. Okay, so I think this is really interesting, Phelps. You know, we talk about how some serial killers have a chosen type of victim. And I know you've sat across from serial killers like this. You've interviewed them at length. What do you think it is about them that they choose a certain type? Why do they choose a certain type? Yeah, uh, that is an interesting psychological aspect in all of this. And one of the moving parts of interviewing these guys, I am greatly interested in exploring further. I've spent a lot of time on this. Mm -hmm. Finding out what it is that drives them to be fixated and focused and obsessed with one type of female. Part of it is that most of these guys have very low self-esteem, which is almost always fed by sexual dysfunction. These guys are introverted and have no friends. They spend so much time alone thinking and obsessing. This is where the fantasy piece I talk a lot about on Crossing the Line comes into play. So they're like incels. 
Yeah. I mean, breaking it down even further, they have this sexual dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It grinds in the backs of their minds in a very subconscious way that then manifests at some stage into rage. Yet the recurring sexual desires they have are still very real, very active, and very much driving their train of thought. So the fantasy and obsessive sexual desire collide with each other. And that's when they decide to act on those fantasies. Hmm. They first begin to imagine their perfect sexual partner. That is where the building of the profile of the victim comes into play. Let's just say white, petite, long brown, black hair, college student, or prepubescent age, blue or green eyes. You get the idea. Whatever they're into, yeah. So now when they go out into the world and act on their fantasies, they select victims based on those particular physical and personal characteristics or that profile in their mind they have created. It's the driving force for them to offend. They also have what one researcher, Chief Nelson Andrew from the West Miami PD, who conducted this incredible research project with six serial killers. And he talks about serial killers and their, quote, dream victim, the perfect object of their desire. And Chief Andrew concludes that they will not harm that victim. Why is that? Well, they can never find their dream victim. Mm. She doesn't exist in the real world. Right. It's one reason why they decide the others have to die, because they don't add up or compare to the image in their minds. You know, these victims are close, but not quite what they want. Those women become their victims. Serial killers are also some of the most cautious people, and they are, generally speaking, more attentive than most, Chief Andrew found. It's part of who they are. I learned through my own research and interviewing these guys that they recall certain things very easily and vividly and are extremely observant of things you and I are generally unaware of or we simply don't care about. Hmm. For example? Well, I interviewed a serial killer who could recite the numbers of all his father's credit cards right off the top of his head. Boom. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Just like that. Oh, and uh, what's the expiration date on that, Phelps? (laughs) You know, I have no reason to believe his recollections are inaccurate, though I did not check them out, obviously. I interviewed another guy who recalled exactly what exit, what mile marker he was at when he abducted a girl. 25 years prior. Jeez. And that did check out. All of this feeds a sort of self-gratification. When they get their victim into their chosen comfort zone, the place where they will carry out the rape or kill, in other words, they then turn on that fantasy and act it out. And the act itself is routine and ritualistic, as if they have rehearsed it for a lifetime. With Larry Hall, that comfort zone would have been inside his dirty, filthy serial killer van. Acting out the fantasy is so methodical and mechanical and gratifying. The best part of this for them is objectifying that victim, the conquest, the terrorizing of the victim, and finally, the brutalizing and torturing, not the actual murder itself. So human beings become disposable to them, objects. Remember, They have very few emotions, zero empathy, no capacity for love. So their victims are meaningless to them in every sense of the word. They just don't care. But now back to Deborah Cole. On August 29, 1981, Deborah Cole is home. It's 11 a.m. She lives in Lebanon, Indiana. 
This is a town Larry Hall is very familiar with because it's about 80 miles or a one hour, 40 minute drive from where he lives in his parents' house. Deborah disappears from her home. All the reports about her case conclude. Let me say that again. She disappears from her home. Not that she was swiped from the front yard or something or walked out the door to go over to a friend's and just never came home. She's home at the time with her mother's live-in boyfriend, Omer Steve Bebout. Then she's gone. Odd, right? Catherine? Wait a minute. This name. Omer Steve Bebout. Yeah, I, I just... I can't make it up. It's one of the greatest names maybe of all time. It's... And Steve is in quotes, so Steve's not his real name. His name is Omer Bebout. So... It belongs in like a Steve McQueen movie or like a some sort of, I don't know, Ned Beatty movie maybe I'm thinking of. It's perfect. I don't know how many got that, but, you know, hey, delivering. <laughs> Have you seen Deliverance? Ladies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know what's weird? My parents used to have the soundtrack of that on vinyl. Like, they just, like, had the soundtrack to Deliverance. Wait a minute. Wait <laughs> and a I would, minute. like, play it as a kid. I'd be like, ooh, there's, like, a, a woods on the cover. Your parents had the soundtrack to Deliverance? <laughs> yes. Right. Dueling banjos. So, for those of you <laughs> unfamiliar with this movie... Mm-hmm. Deliverance is a 1972 thriller starring Burt Reynolds, John Voight, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. And these four friends decide to canoe down a remote river in the Georgia wilderness. All right. As they're way out in the boonies here, in the wilderness, chaos and bizarre things begin to happen when they encounter these local mountain men who are basically guys mostly missing teeth, who haven't bathed in a long time with guns. Need I say more? (laughs) Nothing more than that. It's just a good old time for boys who want to be boys, having a totally good-natured time in nature. And they are literally hunted by inbreds, and they are (laughs) sodomized in the woods by these guys. Yeah, yeah, there's that. There's that part, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Listeners, back to Larry Hall. It's two days before her mother reports Deborah missing. Her case is immediately classified as a runaway. Get this, though. Deborah Cole has a sister, Frances Annette. Deborah is 12, Frances 16. Deborah goes missing, and basically nobody searches for her. She's considered a runaway all this time, when incredibly, incredibly, her sister goes missing on October 4, 1983, a little over two years later. In Francis's case, she is found three days after she is reported missing, raped and shot in the back. Mm. The coroner determines that Francis was alive for the three days she was missing up until the time she was murdered. This is important, I think. Larry DeWayne Hall liked to keep his victims bound and alive for a few days. Yeah, Debbie Cole, she was from Lebanon, Indiana. Okay, so I have to use a Phelpsism here. When a serial killer rings a bell, he's doing it for a reason. You would be correct, Catherine. More importantly, you have Lunatic Larry saying Deborah was from Lebanon. Past tense. Remember, to this day, she has never been located. So was is an interesting choice of words by mm-hmm. by, by by Mr. Larry. 
Mm-hmm. He keeps bringing her up in that conversation with my source. He knows when she went missing and gets her age right. In fact, Larry brought her up for two weeks in a row. He rang that bell two weeks in a row because they spoke about this over two different periods of time. But then, still talking about Deborah, Larry Hall says this. I, I was friends with a guy named Steve that knew her. Okay, wait. Did he just say he was friends with Steve? And we're talking about Omer, quote, Steve, end quote, Bebout, right? This mother's living boyfriend inside the coal house? Ding dong. Ding dong. Oh my God. So you have lunatic Larry and this creeper Steve with the weird name. They are friends hovering around two girls who turn up missing, one of whom is found raped and murdered. You know what I like to say, Catherine. Two plus two always equals freaking four. I've also heard you say there are no coincidences in murder. A serial killer who murdered eight women told me that. Ah, well, that explains that. Yeah, I'm going to take his word for it. (laughs) Right. Let's take another short break and then jump back into the Deborah Cole narrative and listen to Larry Hall on tape discussing her case in much more detail. Okay, so to recap just a bit, Francis Cole, Deborah Cole, sisters. Deborah is still missing. Francis has been found murdered and raped. Her body left along U.S. Highway 52, just north of Lebanon, Indiana, where she lived. Omer, Steve Bebout, suspected in her murder, actually dies of a heart attack in 1989. Hmm. <laughs> then in 1999, 10 years later, DNA in the form of semen and other fluids confirms Steve had raped and murdered Francis. That said, what are the chances Francis's missing sister, Deborah, is a runaway? Catherine, chances of that? Not likely. Zero. Steve, lunatic Larry Hall's friend, was involved in both. There can be no doubt. The question becomes, what does Larry have to say about Deborah's case? And is he also involved? And what I'm going to do now is just play some excerpts where Larry talks about Deborah and Steve. And then we'll come back and we'll discuss. She was a friend of mine. Uh, Steve's a uh, friend of mine named Steve knew her. She was a, she was only 12 years old. She was missing too. Now he lived with her. I lived with him. I uh, just uh, think he was a friend of the family. Uh, he was a little little bit older than me. I met him at a little shopping mall down there by Lebanon, Indiana, where the there's a bus. The buses come in sometimes. Then Larry starts talking about how he was with Deborah Cole on a few occasions. Now, I met her a couple times, but I didn't know her mom or nothing. My friend Steve brought her with him a couple times in the car. I used to hang out with him in a little park down there sometimes. Larry goes on to say that Steve would drop Deborah off at the park and leave her there to, quote, hang out, end quote, with him. That is where he left the conversation about Deborah Cole. Deborah has never been found. Her case remains cold, and she is still considered a missing person. Here's another possibility in Deborah's case. She was reportedly pregnant at the time she disappeared. 
a 12-year-old girl pregnant. This was said to be put out there by people close to the Cole family. Jesus, you can't even imagine. My mind cannot help but to go to the idea that Steve dropped Deborah off at the park for Larry, and then Larry takes care of the rest. The idea that these two scumbags are not involved in Deborah's disappearance is ludicrous and impossible. Both have killed and raped and tortured young girls. Deborah was Larry's ideal victim. She fit perfectly into the matrix of his twisted fantasy. I do wonder too, though, were Steve and Larry a team at some point, driving around, scooping up girls and raping and killing them? And how many could they be responsible for? During the mid-90s, as I touched on earlier in the episode, there was a long court battle about Larry Hall and the notion that he was coerced into admitting all sorts of murders and abductions he did not commit because of a personality disorder, making him, quote, susceptible to suggestion and pathologically eager to please, end quote, based in part on his low IQ. Did investigators do everything right in questioning Larry Hall? Hell no. Did they put pressure on him to confess? Yeah. Did they keep him for hours and hours and hours until he was ready to confess? Yep. That said, is Larry Hall a vicious serial predator and killer? Yes and yes. I totally agree. Christopher Hawley Martin, who grew up in the same town as Larry, he was a pastor and sort of a layperson writer, but he wrote a book on Larry's crimes and he said, I believe it will be difficult to Larry to confess to the worst parts of his crimes. Larry has a problem admitting to any kind of violence, always substituting a softer term for what actually happened. For example, he will always say he, quote, grabbed a girl when in fact he struck her violently. Jessica Roach's jaw was broken by his blow. The facts speak for themselves in Larry Hall's life of murder and rape and abduction. While it was never confirmed that the fingerprint on Lori Deppis's styrofoam cup belonged to Larry Hall, what we do know is this. After luring a woman into or near his van, Larry would use a rag soaked in starter fluid, put it over their mouth and nose to knock them out before raping and eventually murdering them. He may have recanted his confessions, but the fact that he knew information that was never released to the public Well, that tells a different story, doesn't it? And do not forget what he says to my source about Deborah Cole. A dude like Mutton Chop Larry Hall cannot be around so many missing and dead women and not be involved. It's not even the evidence, just an impossibility. My hope is that Larry mans up someday, helps authorities close some of these cases and bring some of these girls home. Because Larry Hall, as stupid as he comes across, may not be able to solve a child's puzzle or add four plus four, which we all know is eight. Right. We can add that. Because, look, he is stupid, but he does know who he killed and where he buried the bodies. There is no question about that. These guys rarely ever forget those details. In fact, they enjoy holding onto those horrific memories so they can revisit them in their minds while incarcerated. They get off on that shit. 
That's it for this two-part Crossing the Line Larry Hall exclusive. And in the coming weeks, you're going to hear more of these two-part exclusive serial killer lost tape episodes. And I may even have a serial killer coming up with tapes of him nobody has ever heard who has a color in his nickname. So I'll just leave the mystery there for now. Oh, very tricky. Come back next week for more murder, madness, and mayhem. But always, be safe, be aware. Sources for today's episode come from Andrew Nelson, 2004, Serial Killers, A Homicide Detective's Take, American Polygraph Association, The State v. Hall, Supreme Court of South Carolina, FBI.gov, Lori Jean Deppis, Menasha, Wisconsin, charlieproject.org, Deborah Jean Colepage, Family Remembered Jessica Roach with Scholarship Memorial, Noelle McGree, April 22, 2014, The News Gazette, Larry Dwayne Hall, Department of Psychology, Radford University, Research by Brittany Begley, Casey Frith, and Carl Elliott, and Phelps would like to thank Jennifer Bland for making the recordings with Larry Hall and providing the tapes. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.